Good morning, everyone. I want to start today with a little pop quiz. See if you guys can guess this quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Declaration of Independence, right? I'm pretty sure just about everyone in this room probably knew that. But what you might not know is that over half the people that signed that document were slaveholders. These people that claimed that human beings had equal dignity and worth, and that they had rights that no one could take away from them. They subjected human beings to horrible atrocities and took advantage of them for their own benefit. And even more convicting for us, or at least it should be, is that many of the most prominent Christian voices in America were also slaveholders. These people denied the basic profession of their faith. While Christians were at the front of the abolitionist movement in America's history, still on the other side, many Christians twisted the words of the Bible to not just excuse the institution of slavery, but to support it and advocate for it. I think what that shows us is that there's something in the human heart, even among Christians, that is just wickedly inclined to injustice and apathy to inequality around us. And it's that wicked bent of the human heart that we see throughout the book of Amos, and particularly in this passage. Because Israel, at least on the surface, looks like it's prosperous and thriving. They're at the height of the political and economic power. Jeroboam II has won many military victories and gotten peace with the nations around them. And he's consolidated wealth and power. He's stocked the royal treasury. But in Amos, we see God confronts Israel and peers back the paint that's covering up a nation that's rotting on the inside. Because all this prosperity comes at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable and the needy. Israel has only achieved the prosperity that they have by oppressing their own people and turning a blind eye to injustice. And so in this passage, God himself confronts Israel and he teaches them two major things. First, he teaches them that they have to pursue justice in light of his, his coming judgment. And second, he teaches them that they can only pursue justice by first pursuing him. So first is the reality of the God who judges. God teaches us and Israel that we have to pursue justice in light of God's judgment. And the reality that runs throughout this passage is that there is an infinitely powerful and perfectly just God who rules over mankind. This God, in verses 8 and 9, it says, he made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns deep darkness into morning. He darkens the day into the night. He calls water out of the sea and pours it out over the face of the earth. He makes destruction flash forth against the strong. This God, in his power, is the same God that stands against Israel. 
And so as glorious as this description of verses 8 and 9 might be, and how beautiful that is, in the case of Israel, it's actually terrifying, because that's the God that judges them. And in verses 6 and 7, in verses 10 through 13, on either side of that description of God, we see why God has turned against them in wrath. It's not an accident that Amos puts the description of God in verses 8 and 9 right at the center of the passage, because everything flows to and from that reality of a just God who is infinite in power and righteousness. And this God is the same one who brings the charges against Israel in verses 6 and 7 and 10 through 13. And he accuses Israel of turning justice to wormwood and casting down righteousness to the ground. And in verses 10 to 13, we get, get a description of exactly what he's accusing Israel of. They've lent out at huge interest rates to the poor because the poor had no other options, and they've taken advantage of them by whenever they inevitably failed to pay those interests, they simply confiscate their land for themselves and sell them into slavery. In addition, many of them are like corrupt politicians and judges who've implemented unjust policies and have given false judgments to anyone who could afford to pay. And lumped in with all of that is simply the reality that many of them were apathetic. It says in verse um, 12 that you turn aside the needy in the gate. In other words, many of the Israelites were simply guilty of sinful apathy. They neglected to give basic compassion to those who were suffering from the injustice around them. Because they were on the right side of inequality, whether that was willful participation in it or just being complicit, they were more than happy to turn a blind eye to it. And if we're going strictly by human standards of judgment, then you might be able to excuse that. But God is clear throughout the Bible, but also especially in Amos, that his standards are far higher than ours. Because God has a far higher purpose in justice than we do. Because ultimately, what's at stake in justice, in our practice of justice and righteousness, is God's glory. Because this God, who made the heavens and the earth, is the same God who's made us in his image. And so how we treat our fellow man, it reflects our view of God. And it reflects God's glory. And so God demands that we treat each other not just refusing to step on each other's rights, but showing each other compassion and honoring the dignity and the honor that God's bestowed on us. And that's exactly what Israel's failed to do. And at its root, God's clear that this is ultimately an issue of their worship. The injustice behind Israel's accusations here in Amos chapter 5 ultimately reveals a heart that is not centered on God. Because as our Lord Jesus said, the first great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is in a way parallel to the second greatest commandment. You shall love the... You, you, sorry. <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because ultimately, when you take God 
out of the center place in your heart. It's like taking, it's like if you took the black hole at the center of the Milky Way out of the galaxy. Everything falls out of orbit. Without the commanding glory of God ordering everything in your life, everything falls out of place. Now, Israel would have said they worshiped God, but God himself condemns their worship. We, we saw last week in chapter 4 that Israel was proud of their regular religious attendance and how frequently they offered sacrifices, but God said that their sacrifices were an abomination to him. And that's because even in their sacrifices, they were sacrificing to an idol. You see, the Israelites, they had made golden calves to offer sacrifices to. And they said these calves represented God. But God made it clear in the second of the Ten Commandments that you shall make no graven image after his likeness. And he does that because he knows that if we make something to represent God, we'll naturally project onto God the things that we truly desire. And so we'll make God into a means to an end. We see that with the golden calf. You see, Israel, they treasured more than anything because they were in an agricultural society. Fertility, a good harvest, and wealth. And all those are represented in the golden calf. And so we see Israel, even in coming to God to worship, was really worshiping themselves and their idols. And God has said, you shall worship no other gods but me, which is why a lot of people get the first and second commandment confused, because ultimately they are very similar. They are closely tied together. And again, that's what ultimately is at the root of their injustice. It's not an accident that in verses 4 and 5, Amos talks about injustice, or idolatry explicitly, and then in verses 6 to 15, he talks almost entirely about injustice. And it looks like Amos is just trying to explain verses 4 and 5 and verses 6 to 15, but then you look at how he kind of shifts directions and you might second-guess yourself. But I don't think that's an accident. I think he wants to show us how when we get our worship wrong, Injustice naturally flows from that. Because if God isn't at the center of the universe, controlling the orbit of our lives, then we have to be at the center. We have to order everything ourselves. We have to chase after everything that we think will satisfy. And in doing so, that means people are a means to an end. Ultimately, making God into a means to an end, and not as the greatest end himself, results in us doing the same thing to people. And so, if you worship your idols rather than God, you'll treat people as tools to chase after your idols. You might be better at this than other people, so other people might not notice it, but you'll manipulate, abuse, and take advantage of other people to get what you want. And you'll excuse your own sins, and you'll magnify the sins of others, because they're standing in the way of your idols. And that is exactly where we see Israel. All these accusations that Amos brings against them, they excuse, they justify, and they ignore him. But thankfully, 
God's words in this passage don't just end with judgment. Even in the midst of this rampant wickedness and sin and injustice, God calls Israel repeatedly, over and over again, seek me and live. Even in the nation that has rejected him for centuries and turned to idols instead of him for their satisfaction, even in the nation that's oppressed its own people and taken advantage of them chasing after these idols, and even in the nation that hasn't even started to show the first signs of genuine repentance, God offers them mercy, forgiveness, and refuge. He makes it clear that they need to seek refuge in him, which, if you've been reading this passage, that, that's a terrifying reality, because that's the same one who stands against them in wrath. But God makes it clear that if they seek refuge in him, that wrath will be replaced with only compassion. And sadly, we know from history that Israel didn't take God up on this offer. But today, we have a better promise than the Israelites did. Because what they saw truly, but dimly, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, we see clearly in the Gospel. We see beautifully there that God himself, the holy and transcendent and perfect God, he took on weakness and flesh for those of us who have rebelled rebelled against him. This God, in the person of Jesus Christ, not only took on human flesh that's subject to decay and death, but he took your sin on himself. The only man who was ever perfectly righteous, perfectly just, and totally undeserving of condemnation, he bore the condemnation that we deserved. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. God made him, namely Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is, if you seek your refuge, if you take God up on his offer, seek me and live in this passage, then God casts all your sin on Christ himself. And Christ represents you before God. Not only to mediate your sin, but also to cast his righteousness on you. It's the most illogical trade you could ever think of, but it's given to us out of love. And that requires a trade on our part, too, because repentance is two-sided. On the one hand, we're called to seek God, turn to God, but on the other hand, we're called to turn from everything else that could command our worship. In verses 4 and 5, God says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba. And he this is just trying to drive home the futility of these idols. If you try to serve both God and your idols, then you're kidding yourself. God demands your total worship. And if you try to replace him with something else, or even share the spotlight with him with something else, then 
that thing ultimately is actually the God that you're worshiping. And this is really where Israel stumbled because they did everything in their power to convince themselves that they could serve both God and their idols. And like we said, unfortunately, they completely rejected God's command in this passage because of that. And we saw the results of that in Israel's history. They were taken away into captivity, and even today, Israel really has no rooted national identity. Now, this could apply to you in two different ways today. And both are distinctly different, but the solution to both is, in a sense, the same. The first is that Christ may never have really been Lord of your life. You may have never actually made a decision that Christ is more valuable than anything else you could possibly serve. For you, God might actually be a important and even a necessary part of your life, but he's not your life himself. And the scary thing is that you can come to church every week, you can read your Bible, and you can pray, just like the Israelites were faithful in their religious participation, but you can still be lost and still not know Christ. If there's anything in your life that, if that was taken away, you feel like your life would be robbed of its joy and meaning and satisfaction, then that thing is the God you serve. For example, if you don't think you could be dirt poor and under the sovereign care of the Lord of the universe and be happy, then money is really the God you serve, not God. And before I move on to the second point, I just want to stress, there's nothing more satisfying than the God of the universe. Whatever security or joy you're hoping to gain by whatever else you might serve, it pales in comparison to the God who willingly gives himself up for you and who gives us this promise in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that applies equally to the second way this could apply to you. And that's that you may genuinely acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior and your all-satisfying joy. You may genuinely have decided that I know Christ is everything. But at the same time, you might feel that your life really doesn't always line up with what you say you believe. You know Christ is all that you could ever desire, but a lot of the times you do desire other things. Your heart's pulled in 10 different directions, and the idols that used to have dominion over you, they've been kicked off the throne, but they're still there. They're still waging war. You might be committed to fighting back, but oftentimes it probably feels like you're outgunned and outnumbered. And I just have a word of encouragement to you, if that's you today, that there's actually a category for that. It's called a Christian. That's all of us. We're in a war that we're severely 
outnumbered and outmanned in. That's why we have to cast ourselves on a savior who alone is stronger than all of our sins. And so the moment that any idol starts to look more appealing than Christ himself is the moment that you should really look to Christ and see who he actually is. Because I guarantee the reason that you're seeing that idol as more appealing than Christ isn't because you found something actually more beautiful and soul-satisfying and a more firm and secure hope than Christ. I guarantee it's because you're not seeing Christ rightly. And so look at the God who clothes himself in weakness to love you and cherish you and show compassion to you even in the midst of your rebellion against him. This God is infinite in power and glory and joy. He doesn't need any of us, but he delights to show compassion to us. And so again, we have the promise that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us all things? Everything we have that we're tempted to serve is a good gift from God to help us enjoy him. And so looking to those things to satisfy is like, I can't even come up with a good analogy for it, actually. So I'm just not. <laughs> but just take me out my word. Christ is more beautiful, satisfying, more secure than anything else you could possibly pursue. And as you daily turn from those idols that vie for your attention over Christ, as you daily see how amazing the Savior is who gave his life for you, your life will change. It's not because Amos was confused that he said in verses 4 and 5, seek me and live, and in verse 6, seek the Lord and live, and then in verse 14, he says, seek good and not evil that you may live. He didn't just change directions, because ultimately seeking God is intimately tied into seeking good. It's impossible to truly love the Lord without loving your neighbor. It's impossible to worship God without seeking to honor him and how we treat those around us who are made in his image. But again, there's a reason that the command, seek me and live, or seek the Lord and live later, comes twice and before the command to seek good and not evil. Because unless you get the worship right, everything else will be out of order. I don't know if you've ever tried to drive a car with an axle that's bent, but you're going to have a very hard time with that. It's not going to be a very fun experience. And unless our hearts are rightly oriented, it'll be the exact same way for us. And so our first response when we see the wickedness of our own hearts, which shouldn't surprise us, but it should grieve us, should be to turn to Christ, who's already paid for the forgiveness and already stands ready to show us mercy and to embrace us and to give us grace to fight that sin and find more joy in him. And so Amos teaches us in this passage that there is a just and mighty God who reigns over mankind. But that God is also a merciful God 
stands ready to embrace everyone who will just simply seek him and live. And so as we walk through this life, let's do so leaning on the mercy of a God who calls rebels to seek him and live. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word by which we know you and we know the grace that you stand ready to give us. God, if we were left without your word, we could potentially see the reality of a just and holy and powerful God in the universe, but it would be impossible for us to also recognize just how gracious of a God stands ready to embrace us, forgive us, and love us. God, I thank you for, in your word, revealing to us Christ, the wisdom, the righteousness, and the sanctification of God for us. God, I pray that you press the reality of the cross deeper into our lives, God, and that would command us and captivate our hearts, God, and that you'd enable us by the cross to pursue justice, to seek good and not evil, that we may live. It's in your name I pray. Amen.